Hello and welcome to episode three of I'm Creating a National Food Service, the podcast that tells you all about the campaign to create a new system of welfare in the UK and how you can get involved. Uh, We've got a really exciting episode coming up this week, the first of the special guest episodes where I get to chat to an academic who knows their stuff about the kind of things we'll be talking about in the National Food Service. Um, So in a little bit, I'll introduce you to Christian Reynolds. We talked all about the ways that you can uh, reduce food waste, both as an organisation and as an individual. And we'll be hopefully taking a lot of that on board um, in our work with the National Food Service. We've been up to a lot in the campaign over the last few weeks. We've had uh, three working group meetings since I last released an episode and there's been a lot that we've been talking about. Um, We've got some really exciting events coming up actually and I I want to tell you a little bit about those. But first of all, what have we been thinking about in terms of how we structure the National Food Service? So I think a really big idea that we've been uh, focusing on that we want to... keep in how we organise ourselves is this idea of a form of welfare where individual contribution is considered. I think we talked about it before in the podcast, how you can um, keep individuals getting their, their ideas out there and contributing to this form of welfare so that you don't become a really an organisation that cuts out these voices. Because then I think people become apathetic about things. Um, And that's really why we want to be a decentralised organisation. What we've been thinking of in terms of structuring ourselves is being perhaps a sort of central advisory research guidance body that um, helps affiliated organisations who are independent but affiliated and in line with our values, helps those with uh, policy guidelines and updates some of the latest research and helps them uh, improve and relate to other organisations. So if you're familiar with the Wikimedia movement and how you have the Wikimedia Foundation at the centre and that runs a lot of research and and helps organise projects, but then you also have the individual Wikimedia chapters who um, are very much their own thing, but in line with the WMF's um, ideas, that's kind of the thing we're looking at. So we've been thinking a lot about how to do that and we've been uh, we came up with this idea of having points of contact in individual um, areas you'd have the sort of country well the whole of the UK really split up into small-ish areas and for each area you'd have a point of contact who would potentially be someone who was paid, maybe, maybe not, we'll see how we go on the funding front, and they would be more committed than other uh, sort of volunteers involved in the organisation. And they do things like organise meetings and people could come to them with ideas and they'd make sure that those ideas were heard in the organisation uh, and they'd sort of publicise the National Food Service, make sure that our ideas are getting out there, meet with the local politicians um, and generally act as a sort of yeah point of contact I guess that's why we're calling them point of contact Um, so that you have this decentralized system um, but you also have some kind of cohesion so that we're not complete so that there is still a network there 
it's been really interesting. I've been reaching out to a lot of different projects over the last few weeks that are doing similar things to us and, and finding a lot of these other organisations that act a little bit like Food Hill does in that they provide uh, free or low-cost food, that they try to stop food waste, intercept food that would go to waste. Um, but importantly for me, I think another thing that these organisations um, that I've been reaching out to do is they focus on this idea of building a community and bringing different parts of the community together, which I think is an incredibly important thing and the, the value of having a public space um, where anyone and anyone anyone and everyone can come along and meet other people and not be sort of segregated off I think into their different branches of society I think that's incredibly important especially if you look at how divided our society is um, these days and we've got some talks coming up that I um, really want to tell you about they're not fully formed yet but we're in discussions at the moment to hold a an event um a learning exchange in Birmingham with the Birmingham branch of the Real Junk Food Project. If you don't know who those are, I'm sure you will know if you're listening to this podcast. But if you don't, you should absolutely check them out. And they do a lot of things around reducing food waste. And we've also got potentially an event coming up at Newspeak House in London. Again, if you don't know about Newspeak House, they are excellent. You should check them out. Um, And I think with third of all, we're looking at doing a... Well, we were going to call it a launch event, but it's not really its not really a launch event because we've already kind of launched. We launched with the National Food Service Symposium last year. So this would be more of a kind of revitalisation event, uh, keeping people's interest up, keeping their ideas being heard, keeping the discussion going. And we'd probably do that at Food Hall. And for all three of these um, talks that we've got lined up, We are thinking of structuring them in a way that allows people's ideas to be heard. So for each of these talks, the first half will probably be a lecture explaining what we're doing, why we're there, what our aims are. But then the second half will be maybe Q&A or maybe people will sit down with pieces of paper and they'll have a discussion point and they'll bring their ideas to the fore. And then we can take those ideas and work them into our plans. Um... We've got another event as well that you should absolutely check out. We're going to be on the radio. We're going to be on BBC Radio Sheffield on the 4th of May, um, 9 o'clock while 10 o'clock in the morning. And we're going to be doing something called Cat's Kitchen. Uh, Cat Cowan, who is a local uh, Radio Sheffield presenter, uh, we cook for an hour in her kitchen. It's recorded live and she talks to us about our work as we do that. So check that out on the 4th of May coming up. But now I'm going to move on to the main event of this episode. It was great talking to Christian Reynolds, who's someone I know from the folk world, but he's a really interesting guy. I think he's going to, he introduces himself in uh, what he does in the world of food waste and food sustainability in the uh, interview. So I'll let him do that. But I really hope you enjoy uh, episode three. And here we go. Hi, my name is Christian Reynolds. I am a Knowledge Exchange Fellow for N8 AgriFood, which is a consortium of eight knowledge-intensive research universities across the north of England. But primarily I work for the University of Sheffield in CHEF, which is the Sheffield Sustainable Food Futures Group. So talking about how we can have a sustainable society and how we can have sustainable food systems. So 
I was interested looking at your academic background. You you started out studying sort of economics and then you did your PhD in applied mathematics. And I was talking to a friend recently about how with a lot of sort of maths degrees, uh, there's not much consideration of the ethics and, uh, you know, applying maths to like ethical considerations. So where for you did... Um, the interest in sustainability and food waste issues come in? Um, well, that's a really good, interesting question. So the ideas around food have always been there. So I did a international relations, so looking at um, food aid and food poverty globally and looking at how different countries actually import or export food and that becomes part of say um, the political agenda for countries. And so one country say can say... Um, stop import or export of say food supplies and that becomes actually part of political negotiations um, and then I finished that and started doing some more economic stuff around the supply and demand of food um, and by a freak set of happenstances I started a maths PhD and with that it was always a very firmly rooted in social science as well and psychology so it was basically saying let's team up and have an interdisciplinary multidisciplinary approach so having people who are psychologists anthropologists marketing scientists nutritionists all these different sorts of people and realizing that there's a lot of numbers within their own world that they might necessarily gloss over but having a mathematical background or an analytical thinking mm. so one of the other things i'm part of is a thing called the stfc food network plus which is the science and technology facilities council network plus and they're basically kind of the big data or the machine learning if you've heard those different terms but they're also the people who are the people responsible for satellites and radio imaging or for drones research in the uk okay. um so they're kind of the nasa if you will because it's a very similar uh kind of things they use but for uk stuff so different sorts of scanning tech different sorts of technology and they're trying to take these things as you say and apply them to food and sometimes it's a mathematician or a scientist going well we could do this really cool thing um but then you've also got to include social scientists in that and people from lots of different disciplines because otherwise there is that ethical dilemma of saying, well, does this actually improve society? How will the rest of society impact on that? Mm. So, for instance, a lot of... Um, economists go well we can't move towards a sustainable diet yet because that'll result in huge unemployment in our agriculture sectors because of all the different beef consumption or animal-based products that we're currently using or it will destroy all these traditional diets that we have so yeah. there's all these balancing acts and ethical issues around food and that can go down to say even just the city-based level of you know a different sorts of ways of feeding or different food supplies are you actually saying we should only go for local food or are you saying we should import our food and make people in different parts of uh, the world have to farm our food when we don't have to anymore there's some really big ethical quandaries and problems with food in general which is really fun to work with going back sort of historically has it always been the approach that you get people cross-discipline working together to solve these issues because i'm interested by what you say of you know someone who's um who's a sort of economist say, well, might say well it's really good to do this thing but then somebody else would say oh yeah but that's got a knock-on effect with that that seems to me like a that holistic approach seems to be really useful to look at these issues yeah and i guess it's a holistic approach for a idea of systems-based thinking and the repercussions throughout a system and in some ways that's an incredibly new concept and in many ways it's a much older concept so i'm a bit of a fanboy of uh, a professor called uh, john yudkin who wrote a book back in the 1970s called Sweet, White and Deadly and he was talking about sugar, not cocaine. <laughs> 
Um, and he was a professor in London and he was a nutritionist, but he basically went, we need these different viewpoints and organized economic nutrition history seminars. And so mm. people from history, from nutrition, from economics all got together from the 70s to the 90s um, to actually discuss from their different perspectives how to feed the world, how to make it better, how to encourage cooking skills, all these different sorts of things. Mm. And, you know, this is this is just post-war. So it started, the movement towards this started in the early 50s. Um, and you're talking about it, by the 60s, they're actually having seminars about it. And, you know, the master's programs down in London... Um, had actual say if nutritionists or um, economists were being trained in these sorts of areas there would be modules on other sorts of things so in some ways that's happened for ages in other ways it's still bold new thinking to have a (laughs) systems-based approach where you know you link sustainable food production with resilient local supply chains with improved health and consumption uh, outcomes at the end of it Mm. and you know at the same point if you're thinking joined up thinking sometimes a plant scientist who's one sort of plant scientist won't talk to a plant breeder who's another sort so there's lots of different boundaries to break down within academia or within you know just different parts of industry not talking to each other i think that's a really useful way to look at it and i think it's something that i want the national food service to consider and we can't just come at everything from uh, the point of view of food point of view we do need to consider other things so I want to look a bit at the research that you've carried out you work mainly in looking at healthy and sustainable diets looking at how to reduce food how to reduce food waste at various different stages can you tell me some of your findings let's start with let's start with food waste how how does one do that what have you found in research food waste is a really interesting and complex subject so I've been working in food waste in Australia and New Zealand since about 2010 um, and I've been working in food waste in the UK since about 2017 and in the UK I've been uh, trying to see how you could link food waste reduction with dietary change towards a healthy and sustainable diet so if we're talking about people actually applying things practically how could you actually get them eating a healthier diet a more sustainable diet possibly even a more locally focused food way um, but also reducing food waste so there's a lot of times food waste is a really tricky issue because it's not on the top of the priority the top of the priority is getting fed and there are lots of there's lots of systemic problems to do with food waste so you know as a single person you can go to a shop and the only size of bread loaf is 800 grams say in a lot of the quick supermarkets around you know the the um, smaller supermarkets Um, and as a single person you can't get through that amount of bread unless you're eating bread for for breakfast lunch and dinner before it goes off (laughs) so a change to packaging and a change to product size or even say something like the national food service approach of communal kitchening and actually purchasing together to create meals and things like that and having other ways to share and cook food could be really effective in terms of that and one and one of your research things looked at plate size interventions is that actually reducing the size of plates themselves or just what's on the plate so there's this really cool group in the states and they did some really interesting research looking at the texture of the plate how heavy it was as in a polystyrene plate at a you know a takeaway container versus an actual plate yeah and if you eat it off a plate people will eat more but they will take a smaller portion as well and they will waste less and then also other sorts of plate sizes so actually looking at the size of the plate and if you're serving yourself from a central bowl the shape of the items that you actually eat with all of this has an effect Mm. um and so 
if you're thinking about this, if we could go to say, hey, Ikea, hey, Tesco, hey, Sainsbury's, when you do your student starter packs, if we could make them 10% smaller, A, that would save on um, oil and gas or tra transportation costs, but it would also encourage people to take smaller serving sizes, which would help with the obesity crisis. It would also help with the food waste crisis. So there are lots of kind of these little other interventions you could do rather than just behavior change, these smaller nudges around that. So yeah, plate size can have a massive impact on food waste. We're talking, you know, over 10% mm. reductions in food waste, which can be quite large. Yeah. Or if you're thinking, say, in a canteen style area, there was some really cool research that showed that, um, say, French fries, not the healthiest thing they found that if you offered smaller portion sizes but offered you know you could go back and get more for the same price as a bigger one so you know instead of buying a large fries you could have two smaller portions of fries of the same size for the cost of a large fries but you didn't have to claim them both at the same time that also reduced wastage mm. because it meant that people ate the amount they were wanting to eat rather than feeling obliged for a bargain to upgrade to a bigger uh, pack size I, I remember watching a documentary about um, a man who had to eat McDonald's for... The Super Size Me Super documentary. Super Size Me, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one of the things was if he was offered... Do you want to go for like a, a large Mac? I don't know. I've been to Mackey's like twice. But you if, call it Mackey's? Yeah, because from Warwickshire, we call okay. it Mackey. What okay. do you call it in Australia? Uh, <laughs> Maccas. But then you've also Mackey's. got Mickey D's, I believe. I've yeah. heard many different... Yeah, uh, we have like Mackey D's here yeah. as well. Because you know about no the concept... No one calls it McDonald's though. Okay. <laughs> That's just, you know... Yeah, go for a Mackey's run. Yeah. Mac uh, what? Mackey's. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, have you okay. heard of the Big Mac Index? No. <laughs> so the Is big something I need to. <laughs> no, you don't. It's a total random pub quiz thing. Well, there's two things. There's a the um, McDonaldization factor, which is basically that until um, the Kosovo crisis, no two countries with the McDonald's declared war on each other. So if a McDonald's opened up, it was basically like the countries had reached a state of basically safety wow. and then Kosovo happened. But anyway, it was just an interesting thing in the 90s post-Cold oh, War of being like... If but you, then how much can you actually trace that back to? Nothing, but it was just it just <laughs> it an interesting, interesting fact. Sorry, well, digression totally. Maybe that is the secret to peace. Is McDonald's fast food or just food in yeah. general, common sense. Maybe salary. McDonald's is actually like the biggest social mover and we have just haven't realised it. Maybe, maybe. Sorry, I digress, sorry. <laughs> one of the things about um, the Super Size Me documentaries, the portion sizes are quite massive, aren't they? And often servers will ask, do you want to, you know, do you want to upgrade to like a bigger one? And all of these sort of psychological tricks and stuff um, does does increase that. And that leads to like less healthy diets and everything. Um, well, there's definitely, I would say, nudges. And mm -hmm. there is part of, I guess, the neoliberal or capitalist idea around you're trying to upgrade people to get the maximum amount of profit out of the per customer or consumer. So there is that idea there that they are trying to upsell. And it is yeah. the citizen or the consumer's choice, inverted commas, to actually go for that. So it yeah. is, it is, I guess, that is their get out of jail free card because, the, you know, you don't have to go for the deal, but we're <laughs> hardwired to do these sorts of things. And that's Jeez. how marketing works. Absolutely. But if, if people, if places like Mackey's were reducing portion sizes and not offering that, then overall food waste would be... Would reduced? reduce is what you're saying? Yeah, is that... Um, so your plate... Uh, oh, so looking at the plate size finding, thing, yeah. well, I guess the, the better evidence for that is saying in terms of the bog off, do you know, buy one, get one freeze. Yeah. And so in the uh, late 2000s, early 2010s, teens, early, early, early teens, um, uh, the 
um, supermarkets all got together and said, we're not doing buy one, get one freeze anymore because we've realised it causes a load of waste because yeah. people buy two when they only actually want one. We'll do other sorts of discounts because they went, we don't want to be responsible for all this waste when it's actually food our farmers are growing and we want to sell it and actually it to be eaten. And so that has happened. And then if you say, look at Public Health England, they've now got a really big thing around calorie reduction campaigns. Mm. Um, and so that's not the soft drink tax. That's something a little bit different. But this is actually saying by, I think it's 2025, they want to... Oh dear, I'm not going to get my stats wrong. It's probably 10 or 25% calorie reduction. Do like a sort of after the thing. Uh, after the thing, yeah, you can do a fact check and add like it in. have a little in. voiceover coming in. Yeah. Just about. Uh, and that would be me, I guess. Uh, awkward voiceover fact checker. Um, it's actually 20% by 2024. Just thought I'd butt in there with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, the calorie reduction targets are a really ambitious thing. And say there are catering companies already out there who are say um one you've probably not heard of but you've definitely eaten at is a company called uh, bidvest and there's a lot of other companies and they've already started doing calorie or recipe changes and portion size changes to make sure that they're in line with that beforehand which is really quite exciting so you can say that these sorts of things are happening but different calorie control measures would actually re start reducing food waste and get people eating more and i guess that's part of menu redesign and actually thinking through this so there's a lot yeah. of work happening say at a, a group called um WRI in a um, which is the World Resources Institute and there's a program called BBL Better Buying Lab and they have basically got together a lot of the big um, eating out groups and actually said hey how about we try and do smaller portion sizes how about we redesign our menu so consumers can actually think about well are nudged towards the healthy sustainable options so it's using all those powers and evil things but for good for a change hooray <laughs> Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, so it's been in the news a lot recently about um, climate change. We've had the Extinction Rebellion protest last week. Yep. Um, and one of the things that the National Food Service wants to do is uh, we, there's this idea of joining the dots, uh, looking at all of these different issues that we can try and combat as an organisation. Um, one of the things you look at is sustainable diets. Um is there an environmental factor to that? What What are your findings? Yeah, so I guess dietary change is one of the biggest ways an individual can actually influence their climate change footprint. So apart from how you travel and the house you live in, diet is the key thing. And so switching towards a plant-forward diet mm. is a really positive step towards that. Um, and within that, you can set, uh, look at even just shifting towards the recommended uh, the dietary advice offered by Public Health England. Even just meeting that will result in a massive climate change reduction on an individual level. Yeah. And by that, I mean going towards 70 or 50 grams of red or processed meat per day. Most mm. people don't even meet that at the currently. So even moving towards a reduced meat diet rather yeah. than cutting out meat entirely. But definitely, if we're looking at climactic change, um, changing how our housing stock, changing how we move around the, the country, um, and also changing our diets are the big, big things. Big things. So, so to clarify, you said not cutting out meat entirely. Well, no, I'm just so part just of is my that a more realistic goal. Basically. So one of my well, one of my research um, things was actually looking at how different. Um, dietary patterns so different people on different uh, incomes or different um, uh, cultures or different walks of life basically mm. how individual people could not cut anything out of their current diet but how they could start changing so increasing portion sizes of some things decreasing portion sizes of the other how much wiggle would you have to do from your current diet to actually achieve something that could meet say the Kyoto targets for you yeah and we found 
that is only, you can keep everything currently in your diet and wiggle that 30 to 50% up and down. And so I say this because a lot of people will, well, there's some really interesting research published last week by YouGov, which showed that um, a vegan and vegetarian, 6% of Londoners are vegan and vegetarian, 4% in Yorkshire, 60%. 6 Oh, 6 Yorkshire and Humber. That's quite different. Yeah, quite different. Factory 10 there. So 6%, I believe it was in uh, London, and then it was 4% in Yorkshire and Humber. And that's the biggest in the UK, but like the biggest fraction of the country that has a vegetarian vegan population. I thought it would be higher than that. It seems half. Sorry, a vegan, not a vegetarian. A okay. vegan only. Okay. And then Essex is zero. Boo. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, so, Essex, so, come on. But so so it's below zero, I should say. Sorry, below one, so it's counts yeah. as zero. That was the but it was just really interesting put this piece of work on YouGov. Um but it was basically looking at why people are switching to all vegan and vegetarian or plant forward diets. Um and also who's resilient or not wanting to go towards those diets yet. And so we've got to think we've got to take the entire country with us if we're moving yeah. towards healthy, sustainable diets. And so whether that's appealing to people to say, well, let's try these different sorts of foods some people won't want to try different sorts of foods so how do you actually make people with their current meat and two veg maybe increase the portion of veg decrease mm. the portion of meat to maybe the government allowed amount and so well, allowed or recommended amount i should say and that might actually start changing things because currently a lot of the discourse is only about let's go towards vegan and vegetarian when yeah. there are and that is also kind of restrictive there may be other religious practices or cultural and dietary practices which mean become or health related issues that mean people can't become a vegan or vegetarian sure. overnight and so i think having that discourse is very um exclusive i think it's i think that's a really good approach to take because i was thinking recently that really if you want anything to take on uh, to catch on you've got to have people doing it who aren't just like the activists who are like really like I don't yeah. know, woke <laughs> to use that yeah. really word that I really don't like um, to <laughs> this sort of thing. Um, but well, yeah, there's always we've got to make it normal. There's, yeah, it's normalising and making it the curve of the early adopters. So you have that curve, and then it will become mainstream, and it's the hope. Yeah, sure. And I guess one of the things that gets me really excited is eating outside the home and eating inside the home. And so if you think about it, one third of the meals. Of the UK population, I believe oh, the stats old. That's the problem. It's a 2010 stat. Mm. Are eaten outside the home, so that's thinking in terms of in schools, in prisons, in hospitals, in um, office places. It's not eaten around a, a dinner table, but it's just really interesting thinking. There's all these other places besides around a dinner table with your family that you eat a meal, and if we even just made that meal out of the three we eat a day plus snacks, that meal itself could reduce our footprint considerably sure and so it's thinking about not just at home what you can do but what you can do out and around yeah absolutely and uh, and um people it has to be you you look to making these things affordable as well yeah. which is another massive thing it's got to be something that is a no-brainer to adopt but but i guess one of the problems with sustainable dietary pathways and habits currently is there is a cash related or income related problem and there's also a time related problem because a lot of vegetarian or vegan traditional dietary pathways involve a heavy amount of cooking time but as you move towards the less amount of cooking time vegan and vegetarian products they involve a higher rate of processing and also a higher cost factor yeah and that's not being i guess factored into the current discourse that's happening at the moment in terms of its e exclusivity and many other sorts of things but you know we're working on this and there are 
different discussions happening. So there's an amazing campaign called Peas Please, um, which is run by the Food Foundation, which isn't doing anything drastic. It's just saying, let's all eat one more portion of vegetables a day. Let's yeah. try and achieve that. And small they've got steps. small steps, but that's actually a massive health impact. It's a sure. massive economic impact for the UK because it's, uh, if you're supporting British farmers when you're getting that one portion of vegetables from a British horticulture, that could be a huge amount of money going in. And if you're doing it, say, through local restaurants, local cafes, whatever, there's all these small knock-on ripple effects. So it's better for you, better for the country, better for your local economy, etc. And so those are just small things before you even get to the whole changing uh, different protein sources and things like that. And then mm. let's get started on oils. And you can talk sure. about the differences of fats and those sorts of Absolutely. problems. And uh, but then again... <laughs> this is this is the crazy thing. Yeah. There are more vegetarians in China than the entire population of the UK. Oh wow. If you look in terms of so we've only got data till 2016. Mm. But within that, younger people are eating the same amount of meat as they did to 2012, 2015, etc. So the younger generations are eating the same amount of meat that the you know, they have eaten as millennials. Sorry, I'm doing air quotes for those listening at home. But what you can actually see is that they're eating less meat than people who were boomers born at the, when they were their age. Mm. So it might be also that millennials have a different sort of diet and food culture to those who were born in the 1940s, 50s, mm. 1920s, which means that we're more, less likely to eat meat and more likely to be receptive and fancy other sorts of foods. It's yeah. a really complicated issue. So um, I want to I want to relate your research and your findings to the National Food Service and the affiliate organisations that might one day make it up. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to those organisations that they need to be thinking about in order to be more sustainable, um, in order to make sure that they are contributing positively to this sort of holistic look at, well, everything like the economy and food waste and all that sort of stuff? So I'm involved heavily in the sustainable food cities movement. So that's a uh, over, I think it's over 50 now, 50 different cities across the UK or regions that have got sustainable food charters in place. And, you know, I, I get into interact with a lot of different on the ground food movement operatives and a lot of them are doing amazing good. And I wouldn't say there is anything that is unsustainable about those operations. Yeah. And I would say that any of the affiliate movements to to the National Food Service also will not have anything unsustainable, air quotes, about it. Yeah. And if you're sure. thinking through if the National Food Movement is also being a source or a place that f food that has not been eaten but is passed uh, is deemed food waste by a supermarket and so therefore is sent to the National Food Movement as a redistribution area, you're not going to have much say over what actually food is coming into it for cooking for everybody in there. Sure. And so it's a, it's a real, it's a tough, I guess, I mean, I have it's to a say, real like, we, uh, we do tend to get a lot of vegetables, though. Yeah, no, you totally will. It's fantastic. an amazing thing to get all the vegetables. And you can ensure having a plant-based diet, plant-forward diet. Mm. Um, and if, you, if not, you could always be supporting local farms and local producers because sure. there are, you know, farms out there in there. And if you don't support them, we'll collapse our own industry. And so there, there is need to look at integrated food corridors throughout the UK. Um, but I think the ethos of local alternative agriculture is really strong in this country and alternative food systems in this country. And the N uh, National Food Service, NFS, good acronym? Yeah, So sure. the NFS. NFS is going to play yeah. a vital role in that. 
I did actually look up NFS on Google the other day because I, yeah. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything really dodgy that also used those initials. And what you find? Safe. You're safe. <laughs> We're oh. safe. It's, it's, it's a very so, boring technical. I yeah. don't know what it is, but <laughs> there's nothing slightly dodgy about it. So, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, so <clears throat> you sent me over some. Um, <laughs> Sorry. About ten, <laughs> about 10 minutes before you arrived, so I didn't get the chance to read through it all, but um, I was quite interested. You pointed me towards a lot of other um, organisations that are um, looking at the kind of issues that we'd be looking at. Um, we've got Sustainable Food Cities, uh, the Incredible Edible Project. What a good name. Yeah, Can you tell a, me a bit about those? So I'm not directly involved with Incredible Edible. I've met them through the organisations I'm involved with, and they're basically a group who are trying to get communities involved around the idea of food. Mm. So they're setting up community projects such as uh, pavements that are edible. So, you know, instead of it being plants which are just flowers, yeah. you get nice edible things on your pavements so council they they so in the areas they're in you know they, it's kind of allotments but in the street they hold different events it's a uh, they're also doing food waste reduction things it's a it's a very amazing movement so if you ever get up to top morden top morden um it's a really great thing to see up there and then yeah i've not got direct involvement but they do some really cool things fantastic yeah and we should be um i think looking at building uh, partnerships with these um within the na agri food project you have um you do build partnerships i believe with other organizations um what do these partnerships entail what support do you offer to organizations so within an agri food one of the purposes of my role is to build relationships and to be able to take research that's done in the N8 universities and take it out to the community see what research needs there are and take that back to the research community and say how can we best support our different um, communities whether that be a alternative food network whether that be potato farmers or dairy farmers whether that be a processing a food processing plant or a, a grower of some description so all the different parts of the food system actually going and saying we've done this research how can we actually help you with this research deploy it implement it yeah and that could be from say food safety or say AMR so antimicrobial resistance through to different sorts of crops being grown in different sorts of areas so actually looking at the varieties farmers are actually using and saying well in our gene bank we have these ones which actually take less water or are more nutritious through to actually looking at um, different sorts of um, alternative food networks Mm. and so it's just actually thinking through these different sorts of projects and saying how can we best support with the research that's going on so it's not just ivory tower stuff but actually applying oh absolutely i think that's so important isn't it yeah it's bridging that gap um fantastic um do you know i had another question oh i just remembered it go for it okay you can edit all the fluff out (laughs) i might not if i keep it in so australia versus the uk who's better uh, food waste reducing food waste uh, right so um, <laughs> I'm playing on your sort of like so, um, so no 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 so, so um, <laughs> the context of this is that I um, started researching food waste in Australia around 2010 to 2014 and I was part of a team that did one of the first big quantifications of food waste looking at the drivers of food waste in Australia and how to um, help and since then Australia has now got a national food waste strategy and also has a cooperative research center on food waste which means that it's you know it's going gangbusters (laughs) but 
While I was doing that in 2010, there was an organization called RAP, which is the Waste and Resources Action Program, and it was set up by DEFRA in 2000, so it's now 18, 19 years old nearly. Mm -hmm. And that's Um, that's UK. So that's a UK organization. And they did in 2008... a piece of work called the food we waste and it was the first measurement ever in of food waste in the household and in 2008 so so they wow, well no the first nice. really accurate measurement ah, i should yeah. say so they got people doing diaries they got people weighing the waste and they also then went and took the bins they put out in the street took them to a sorting facility and counted everything in those bins and actually realized you know this is the amount of and it was at a rep, national representative sample so it was the first time anywhere that they did this globally mm. And they went, oh, 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 because previous to that, say the FAO or lots of other organizations had and myself in Australia had done kind of aggregate models. So it's basically taking small bits of data and you add it all together and you figure out what's there. And it's a pretty good guess. But they went and did it from the ground up as well. And they met in the middle. And you could so you've often heard the stat probably that one third of food never reaches a human stomach. Mm, yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, so, that, so 30% of uh, food is wasted or lost globally, and that is equivalent to the greenhouse gas emissions of a really large country. So in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it's China and the USA, and then a pile of food waste. Mm. So this is a staggering amount of climate embodied emissions in food waste. Yeah. Um, so in the UK in 2008, they did this really big measurement, and it changed policy overnight they basically went this is a huge area and what happened was things like the bog off deal happened they went we need to start uh, you know reducing the causes of food waste they did and so uh, professor david evans basically went into houses with uh, some other people and started looking at the cultural and the anthropological reasons behind food waste researchers from other parts of the uk also started doing different sorts of things so looking at say how recycling bins could be placed in a home to actually increase food waste or uh, sorry increase the diversion of food waste from landfill I should say, not increase food waste itself. (laughs) Um, But thinking through these different things from a systemic process. So the reason I'm kind of talking all this waffle and background is because I'm just saying that the UK has been doing this and been engaged since 2008. And so they are ahead of the rest of the world. A lot of other countries are still on this journey and doing the same steps around this. So Australia's sure. doing these quantification studies and doing the same practice. Canada released earlier this year this huge study, which did even better than the UK studies. But it, So they're at different parts of the journey and they have different challenges. The UK is a small island of 65 million. Australia is a really big <laughs> island of 25 million, something like that. Yeah. And so they're different population centres facing different logistical challenges and different city councils. So each city council in the UK has a different recycling policy. Same in Australia, but they're covering a much bigger area and with different recycling um, initiatives within that. So have you heard of the Great Great Wall of China in terms of plastic waste? So China earlier this year basically said, we're not taking any more plastic waste to be recycled in China. We're just doing our own. And all the global rest of the countries who are sending their waste to China to be recycled because it's very cheap went oh no what are we going to do and i've had to start thinking around how to actually process their waste themselves Sure. i mean this is maybe not all listeners are aware that actually some countries will send their waste to another country for it to be processed there totally and even in countries so there are tales from 
a while ago. So in Australia, each government in terms of state has its own landfill taxes, which means if you live close to the border and you're a local council, it might be worth driving to another state because it's a cheaper landfill tax and dump your land stuff in another landfill. Because, say, the difference between 20, do- 20 Australian dollars a tonne and 150 Australian dollars a tonne means that behaviour can get modified like that. Wow. Wow, that's extraordinary. And and so this is, I mean, this is a really big... We were, we were talking the other day about having um, a series of events about climate change. Yeah. Is there any chance you'd be interested? Yeah, I would happily happily come and talk about something like Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Yeah, well... Great. So, yeah, no, happy to do that. Yeah. Well, listeners, we haven't sorted a date or anything, but uh, if you fancy watch hearing this more about this... Space. Watch space. Listen to this space. <laughs> listen to the airwaves. And two of the areas you can directly result in climate change are looking at how you shift your diet and looking to see if you can reduce your food waste. And you can do that through correct storing of um, food. So if it's in the fridge, if it's in the freezer, using your freezer for milk, using your freezer for bread. A lot of the most wasted foods can go in the freezer. If you buy a bigger pack, put half in the freezer if you have a big enough freezer and then defrost as you need. There's little things like that or even just buying the correct pack size of a lot of different foods can drastically reduce your food waste. And if you do waste food, you could always think about uh, putting it in a food waste recycling if you're in a council that does that, or doing your own home composting, which means that it doesn't go to landfill and create methane, which is 21 to 25 times more damaging for the greenhouse gas effect than simple carbon dioxide, which we breathe in and out. Wow. Christian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No worries. I look forward to eating at the National Food Service soon. Brilliant. Thanks. No worries. No worries.